Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. We just finished the Thanksgiving season, all geared up for Christmas, full steam ahead, right? Maybe you've noticed that in the last few years, maybe it's always been true. I've just never been here before, you know, in, my, in this season of my life. Uh, but it seems that Thanksgiving has pretty much become eclipsed by Christmas. Have you noticed that? I'm not complaining about it necessarily. I just have noticed that uh, Christmas is, is already full steam ahead long before Thanksgiving gets here. I remember as a kid, the time between those two holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas, they were, they were close. You know, you could see one from the other, but man, now they're, they're almost indistinguishable from each other. Thanksgiving has become the holiday where we focus on Christmas shopping and, you know, we move from one day where we are, it's a day of Thanksgiving and the very next day we're discontented in buying more stuff that we don't need. Again, this is not that sermon, okay? So don't get, don't get riled up just yet. Thanksgiving is the season that we use to get ready for Christmas. We were gone this week, my family and I. Well, not, not Isaac. He was uh, left behind to work, uh, which we're very grateful for. I mean, not that he wasn't with us. We were grateful that he worked. I got a call, oh, many months ago now from a little girl in the church that we pastored in Nashville. Uh, she's 30 now, and she's getting married. And she called, she called months ago to ask if, if, we would, if I'd be able to come and do her wedding. And so uh, it happened to be the same week that we were going to South Carolina anyway, so it made sense for us to go ahead and, and pile up and leave a couple of days early. So we went through. We went through Nashville and stayed with some friends and were a part of, a, of an outdoor wedding, and it was 34 degrees. <laughs> a very emotional wedding for us. A very special family. We went from there to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, where we stayed for two nights and took in all the Christmas lights and Christmas shopping and Christmas foods and all of that sort of thing. We left from there, went to Asheville, North Carolina to maybe see the Biltmore. Did you know that you can't see the Biltmore from the road? Some of you know that. Well, we were just passing through. I just wanted to see it. It's $100 per person in your car just to get out to walk to see it. So we pulled around through the guard shack and left. Googled it. I saw it. <laughs> it was on our way to, then on to South Carolina for a follow-up doctor's appointment, which I won't get into now. But uh, everywhere we went, everywhere we went the week before Thanksgiving was already Christmas. Thanksgiving has become simply the feast of a single, the first feast of a single holiday season. It's like, it's like the meal you eat before you get into the holidays. Maybe everybody doesn't have that as your tradition, but it, it seems to me that that's, that's starting to be the, the norm. And again, 
maybe it's no big deal. What, you know, what, what's been lost? Well, maybe nothing. And maybe our soul, I'm not, I'm not sure, somewhere in between, something is being lost when we... You see, when we, when we get into this rushing, this hurried busyness, moving quickly to whatever is next, giving thanks is almost always the first thing to go. That's not just true on the calendar. That's true in regular life. When you're hurried, when you're busy, when you're checking your calendar to see what's next, very seldom can we take the time or do we take the time to be content where we are. We just finished a series through the book of Philippians and near the end, Paul wraps up by saying that peace comes to those who are keenly aware of God's presence, both in their minds and also in their hearts. Peace is reserved for those who take time to worship Him and to adore Him in prayer. That's what that word prayer means in Paul's context there is to worship God and to make supplication, to care for the needs of others. Peace is available for those who worship God and for those who consider the needs of others and are burdened for the needs of others. And peace comes to those who are thankful. Paul then comments that he has learned to be content. He's lived with much and he's lived with nothing. He's lived with fullness and he's lived in emptiness. He has lived with many possessions and he has lived in prison. And so if contentment brings peace, then why is it that peace is so elusive for the followers of Jesus Christ? I want to repeat that question. If contentment brings peace, then why is peace so elusive for Christians? Now, I may have a unique perspective, um, not, not that it makes me any different, but being a pastor, I get, and again, I don't know how this is going to sound, but I'm going to say it. I get most people's worst days. I get there a lot of brokenness. I get a lot of emptiness. I get a lot of needs. I'm not complaining. God's grace is sufficient. What I am saying is it's, it seems that I have... I have seen an increasing loss of peace even among God's people. It's what most people are looking for. And when something that they hope for to bring them peace isn't bringing them peace, that's the issue that they want to deal with. Why isn't my marriage bringing me peace? My kids are so not at peace. My finances are not at peace. All of my relationships are, and, and God's people, it's, it's like to equal proportion of dealing with the world and dealing with God's people. P- peace is elusive. But so either our experience and our culture is off or Paul is wrong about worship and care and thanksgiving bringing peace to our life. It seems to me that we're trusting the wrong things to produce the right things. Because to trust the right things is, well, we just don't have time for that. We don't, take time, we don't have time for the investment that is required to get there. We want it now, right? We want it now. Fix this now. Do it now. 
We think if we just had more money, our finances would be remedied. If we just had a better spouse, our issues would be better. If we just had a different home, if we just had a, something else that will fix it. So we're just constantly moving and trusting God, but not with everything. Have you ever noticed that when you have very little, and I don't mean just stuff, okay? I mean like when you're in need, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, relationally, whatever it is, it, it seems to, it's a lot easier to find time for God. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that when you're, when you're down and out, you might attend church more often? You might be in the Bible more often. You might find a way to slow down because you're, you're in need in that moment, right? I mean, it's, Paul, Paul says, you know, I, I know what it's like to be here and know what it's like to be here. Well, for me, and probably for you, I think for most, it's really easy to be contented when you have very little because you're a lot more filled up with the Lord. You're seeking Him a lot more. I don't think being down here, that's not, that's not our hard part. Our hard part is learning to live contented when we're blessed. That's the hard part, at least for Christians. It's being thankful when we have, when we abound. That's the tricky part. Things without thankfulness leads to materialism. And good feelings without obedience leads to humanism. And American Christians are on the fast track to both. And the scary thing for me is, and for us should be, is that we've couched it in Christianity so we're kind of not even aware of how humanistic and materialistic we have become. And so God gives us some really clear markers because you can end up in a place and not know how you got there. Kind of like Samson. How did I get here? I'm so blessed. Everything always goes my way. Everything always turns up Samson. How did I end up here? Well, so sometimes we don't know. So God gives us certain litmus tests. The character that we're developing is a really great litmus test to really define who we are and what we're tethered to in this life, what we're trusting in in this life, how we think, how we feel, what we're producing is the best test for what we're tethered to. Here it is, Christmas time, and I'm still talking about Thanksgiving. Well, that should make all of you no Christmas carols till after Thanksgiving people really happy. I'm still talking about Thanksgiving, and here it is, Christmas. But giving thanks and remembering that Jesus became flesh What's the most important part of Christmas is, is Thanksgiving. We can't move from one holiday to the other. We have to take one holiday into the other. This is what I believe that God was teaching Moses so that Moses could teach a nation. I was reading this past, this past week um, 
In Deuteronomy chapter 8, I've read it a lot before. I've never seen it before. It may not mean anything to you, but it, it meant a lot to me, and I feel like the Lord wants me to share it with you. Again, we're going to be in Matthew 11 in a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10, I want to read it. And it says, and you shall eat and be full. Right? You shall eat. It's a great Thanksgiving passage. You shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the land that he has given you. I don't know. There's some things about that verse that just kind of popped up. Not the, you know, we, we drove 16, 17 hours on Thanksgiving Day uh, this year. So I had uh, old timers breakfast at Cracker Barrel uh, on Thanksgiving, and it was great. And it was so crowded. It was crazy. So, so sad. All these people not celebrating Thanksgiving. I'm just kidding. I'm being a hypocrite right now. Notice the sarcasm. I was doing that too. <clears throat> but there's some things that I saw this, this week reading this, this verse really quickly that I, I just wanted to bring out. <clears throat> God is focusing Israel on their, on their past experiences in the wilderness because when they get into their new experiences, their new expectations, they're going to tend to focus on what's next. They're going to start focusing on the blessings from the land instead of the blesser in the land. That is so important for us. When you start focusing on the blessings rather than the blesser, you start losing focus. And you don't even know it. In fact, the first verse of Deuteronomy 8 tells them to be careful, make special attention, be intentionally mindful. Verse 2 tells them to remember, again, backward, as you begin to accumulate things again, as you begin to have possession of things, be humble, he said, lest you forget what God has done. When you forget God's blessing, or you begin to take God's blessing for granted, you're going to ultimately forget God, and you're going to focus on the creation rather than the creator. And you're going to relegate him to some time on a calendar rather than a relationship with him. And when, you're, and when you do that, there's no other option except for him to get your personal attention. And that is not always pleasant. I think that's why he mentions verse 5 and 6. The Lord your God disciplines you. So when you start experiencing this paying attention to the blessing and not the blesser, you're going to experience some discipline from the Lord. And then verse 10 tells them to bless the Lord when you eat and are full. And remember the manna. When your cabinets are full... You need to remember that you used to go to bed with no cabinets. And you need to remember that you used to not have bread on your counter when you went to bed at night. And when you get up in the morning and you reach for a biscuit, you need to remember that used to, you had to go out and gather today's manna. And when you open up your closet in the morning and you reach in to get another clean set of clothes, you need to remember that there was a time when you only had one set of clothes. And God made those clothes last for 40 years so that they wouldn't become thin. You need to remember because you're going to start focusing on your stuff rather than the giver. And when you do it, you're going to forfeit everything. And the rest of the Old Testament is pretty much them just living in this constant state of forgetfulness. God's going to bring you into a good land and you're going to, you're going to drive people out of it. 
and you're going to find wheat, and you're going to find barley, and you're going to find vines, and, and you're going to find uh, 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 figs, and you're going to find pomegranates, and olive trees, and honey, and you're going to find mines full of ore that you're going to have to work in. You see, there's a lot of things you're going to have to do when you get the land, but just remember, all of those things are a gift from me. All the blood, sweat, and tears, and all the war that you're going to have to go into, the land that I'm getting. Just remember, you're going to experience all of these things. But remember, I'm the one who gave them to you. Remember me. Remember me. Remember me. Don't start focusing on stuff once you have it. Because I'm going to give you some stuff. But I'm also giving you me. And I love, I love this word that, that God tells Moses to use. It's like in verse 10, tells him to, be, to bless the Lord. That word bless means to be, to adore from the knees. Bless the Lord. It's a, it's a, it's a very specific word, barak. It means, it means to, give, to give blessing to the Lord, to adore him from your knees. You ever hear people say you need to have an attitude of gratitude? It means to have a general or consistent appreciation of things. Um, But you know, a thankful heart that is focused on the adoration of God's goodness in our life from our knees is much more than a general idea of gratitude. I'm thankful. Yeah, I'm thankful. We should be thankful. Wear shirts, be thankful. Signs, be thankful. And we read it and we say, yeah, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. I bless the Lord. Too blessed to be stressed. Oh, these are great cliches. We're great at that. We're great at it. Kindness, nah, nah, whatever. Some of the most angry people I know wear kindness shirts. Life is good and they're angry about everything. Listen, words are easy, folks. The character of Christ is much more difficult. Because you have to surrender everything to him to get it. God's not calling them to be grateful. God's calling them to adore him from their knees. Specifically for the land. You say, thank you, God, for all my blessings. No, no, for all your blessings, count them. List them for the land, for the milk and the honey, for the olive trees. Thank you, God, for the vines that produce grapes. Thank you, Lord, for the figs that are on the trees. Thank you for the bloody knuckles where I went into the mine and dug out ore. Thank you for the land, Lord, that we had to go to war over. Thank you, Lord, for the, for the, for the. Specifically, intentionally take time to stop on your knees and bless the Lord. Otherwise, you look at your stuff and say, I'm thankful for that. Well, I'm thankful for that. Right? It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. And it's leading to a wrong place. Where as long as we appreciate something, it's the same thing as being grateful for it or blessing the Lord for it. It's not the same thing. Oh, it's a minor tweak. But it ends up in a different destination. We forfeit peace for 
anxiety. We forfeit hope for frustration. I think of the, in Luke 17 when Jesus heals the ten lepers. I'm going to read that. It says, One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice and threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Jesus said, where are the other nine? I'll tell you where the other nine was. They were off living their life being thankful for the healing. You think they wasn't thankful? I mean, I'm I'm not contradicting the story because I really do believe that Jesus is 100% accurate when he says this, what this guy's doing, that's what thankfulness looks like. But if you were to ask those other nine, are you thankful for what Jesus did? What do you think they would say? Look at my hands. Of course I'm thankful. But one of them took the time to adore Jesus from their knees. Most of the time when you find a commit a commandment to be thankful in scripture it's always tethered for with a for the it's always tethered for to a specific thing. And I'm afraid that in our general thankfulness we have forgotten to be thankful not to him on our knees. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, Psalm 100 verse 4 says. Into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Thanksgiving opens the door to his presence. And only in his presence can you find peace. It's the only place peace can be found. Is in the presence of the Prince of Peace. Every other peace is a false substitute of peace. Wherever it is that we're hurried to get to can't offer the peace that Jesus offers. It's a substitute. Peace was always one of the promises that Israel looked for when God told them what to look for and when the Messiah, they were looking for national peace and personal peace and Jesus came. Sadly, peace didn't. At least not the way they expected it to come. They'd hoped that peace would simply just overpower them. When Jesus, when the Messiah gets here, we'll have peace. It doesn't work that way. Peace doesn't work that way. That's why when you become a Christian, you might have peace in a moment, but eventually you're like, man, I'm a Christian. Why do Christians shouldn't think like this? Christians shouldn't feel. Where's the peace? Because he doesn't continually overpower you with peace. That's not the way peace works. Peace, peace is a byproduct. Peace is a reward. Most of us want it as a right. Peace isn't a right. You can have it, but it ain't just freely given. Unless, unless we choose the presence of Jesus Christ to find it in. Then it's given in abundance. See, when, when faith in God and peace with God come together, they produce hope. Now, there's been a, I've done a lot of introduction and I just about through it for the hope that you, it seems to me we're moving more and more quickly to hopelessness as a country. 
and maybe as a people. And it seems like hope should be the marker that distinguishes Christians from the rest of the world. And I'm not sure it does. You see, when you read, when you read what, what Paul said in, Galatia, in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit, singular, of the Spirit, it's one fruit, right? It's one fruit. It's a composite fruit. Nine attributes, collectively one fruit. This production of the Spirit in us, manifesting through us, will always be the composite attitude that contrasts against the attitude of the world. The fruit of the Spirit will always be the marker that most clearly differentiates God's people from not God's people. I believe that it is clear through Scripture that's the fruit of the Spirit in us that the world, in that the world can see Jesus most clearly. He's most visible in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, you, you know. Gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You think about it, those composite, those composite attributes. If you were to take them and you put an equal sign out from them, it's hope. That's what it, that's what it offers. That's what it is. Hope. Hope isn't listed as a fruit of the Spirit because fruit of the Spirit produces hope. Hope is the byproduct of all the fruit working together in the life of a believer. It's the f- hope is the fullest revelation of Jesus in us to the world. I think that's why Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter said that the world is not going to understand hope in Jesus Christ. And when they see it, they're going to want it. So be ready to give an answer. I think it's our our hope that stands out to the world. Not, Not hope itself, the object of hope. It's in you. Peter's talking about Jesus being the object of our hope. Again, just by way of introduction, hope is seeing Jesus on the other side of your issues and recognizing that he is pulling you to himself. That's what hope is. So I just want you to visually demonstrate that. Hope is seeing Jesus on the other side of whatever your issue is and just knowing that he is pulling you through it. When you can see that, that's hope. Let's look over Luke chapter 2. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you, what is it? Good news of 
Great joy it will be for who? All people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, What is it? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill with whom he is pleased. You see, the good news of Jesus will produce great joy for those who take advantage of his promises. We often talk about the hope of the resurrection. And that is the climax of our hope. That gives power to every other hope. It's true that the resurrection gives power to every hope we have. It proves that Jesus has the power to pull us through whatever it is. But did you know that hope begins with Adam and Eve? It's in the very first story. When it was darkness and they had nowhere to turn, God steps in, offers them hope. You begin to see this in every story. You see hope. You see Noah. The world's going to be flooded. Noah, here's some hope for you and your family. Abraham's wife is barren. Abraham, here is some hope. But where is the sacrifice, Lord? Here is hope. Over and over, you just see these characters getting to the very end of themselves. And God steps in and pulls them through it. Offers them hope. Pulls them through it. Moses in Egypt. Here is hope. Moses and God's people in the wilderness. Here is hope. Psalm 112 verse 4. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, righteous. Isaiah 9 2. People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. In any survey of scripture, you're, it's going to be easy to find God giving hope to his people. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. God always provides in the fullness of time. Now I'm going to weave a thread through all of these things. This is where we must always place our hope in God's ability to pull us through. But you can't have that. You, listen, and the reason that I'm tying these things together now is because you can't have hope without peace. You can't, you can't just say, well, I'm going to hope for the best. Well, you can do that. that. That may or may not work out for you. That's probably not going to work out long term. That's not a great plan. Well, I'm just hoping, I'm just hoping in the, I'm just hoping in the, that's not hope, folks. Hope is seeing Jesus on the other end, caring for you, pulling you through it. That's hope. And that you can only see that when you have peace with him because you have placed your faith in him. Does hope epitomize your life? I mean, if, if this is the culmination of what God is performing in you and it is the re fullest reality and revelation of Jesus Christ in you, and if it's the marker that's going to make the world look at you and say, I want what you have, if, if hope is that thing, does it epitomize your life? Do the fruit of the Spirit radiate together in your life so that the hopeless co-workers, neighbors, family, world, that the hopeless would see something in you, hear something from you that makes them want what you have. 
It should be the marker of Christians. But when the hopeless world around them, around us, compare themselves to ours, their word to ours, their marriage to ours, their children to ours, their perspective of the world around themselves, hope isn't the thing that they walk away with. We might be able to be great at commiserating with them, but I don't think when the world interacts with Christians, they don't walk away with hope most of the time. And if I could take one more step further, I think that's because hope's not what we walk away with most of the time. We project frustration, anger, fear, complaint, materialism, discontentment, dissatisfaction at the same rate as a lost world. And we point our fingers at those people who don't have hope. If Jesus offers us hope while we wait, then why doesn't epitomize his followers? If hope is the quality that catches the attention of the world, why aren't they asking? Is it possible that our desires, our wants are attached to Jesus, but our our lives are tethered to the same world as the hopeless? It's producing the same thing. Is the joy of Jesus on your lips? You say, well, it's in my heart. If it's in your heart, if it's in your heart, Matthew chapter 11. Over the last year, maybe for a few years, I've been trying to wrestle with one of the promises of Jesus. You know, when the angels came, it says he shall be. So the birth of Jesus, that's, that's good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. Of course, it's to all people. But it's not just his birth. It's, the, it's his life. It's his presence that's really the good news. Ultimately, his life giving is the good news. And so it's one of the things that Jesus says that offers us hope. Let's wrestle with it. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. Doesn't that sound dreamy? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is that true? You think that promise is true? And why in the world don't we feel easy, rested? Why don't we feel light? Life circumstances have a way of leaving, leaving us hopeless. Let's look at those that we already named. Almost every, every character throughout the Scripture 
hopeless at some point in their life. And that's when, that's when hope is most clearly seen is when you're in a hopeless situation, right? A fiery furnace, for instance. That's a great place to have hope, but, you know, to, to need hope. Or a lion's den, or a barren womb, or an empty altar, or a filthy jail cell. You see, hope isn't a naive refusal to notice difficulty. It's not a, a blank stare that just refuses to see the burden. It's an awareness of difficulty, but a certainty that God is going to be glorified as Jesus pulls me through it. Because that's what he does. It seems like nothing in our life can steal our hope more than when we find ourselves weary, tired, worn out, fatigued. And knowing that Jesus is around doesn't always work. I just think about... Um, the, the disciples in the boat. You remember when the storm comes and Jesus is down taking a nap? And just knowing Jesus is around isn't good enough. You know, they wanted to know that Jesus is awake, alert, at the stern of the ship. We want to make sure that Jesus is caring. We want to see the care in his eyes. That's when they start feeling better because until then they don't have hope just knowing Jesus is around. We lose hope when we think Jesus don't care, when we think Jesus isn't pulling. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love the promise. I want it to be a reality. It's like if, if ease of burden and rested souls. Man, we must be doing this thing wrong. You ever think about that? Maybe that's the part that that's the wrestle really is. It's like, man, if this is what Jesus is promising, I'm not doing it right. Jesus was fully aware of the tendency of people to shoulder heavy burdens, to take their eyes off of him, to live life as if it were, you know, full of themselves. Uh, they were share, the, carrying their own heavy burdens. And when they do that, they're going to lose hope. I, I love Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't promise that there's not going to be heavy burdens. Wouldn't that be easier though? Wouldn't that be easier if he said, hey, come to me and I'll make sure you're never burdened again? I think there would be a line. Jesus, Jesus compares two ways to deal with the heavy burdens of life. Now, the context of this is very important too. Um, Jesus spoke to his followers about John the Baptist's faithfulness. This is the very first part of chapter 11. It's very important because it's a part of the context. Uh, John the Baptist has been very faithful in prison. And, the, and, and at the very end, he sends a little note to Jesus and he said, are you really the Messiah or should we look for another? Now, I love this because it normalizes John the Baptist a little bit for me. And, and I, I don't want to do any dis, disrespect or harm to that, but the very fact that here John the Baptist's life has ended up in a way that he did not expect. He is the voice in the wilderness, the loud one. 
repent. You know, this really audacious, bold, bold man. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all of a sudden, here he is listening to the axe grind in the background for the back of his neck. And he's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. My, I mean, Jesus is like blood to me. <laughs> I mean, I've lived my whole life for him. This is, how did I end up here? So naturally, Jesus is not stepping into the scene the way John the Baptist expected him to. And he's, John the Baptist has taken his eyes off of Jesus and he's placed them on his circumstance. Are you really the Messiah or should we look for another? Here's what John the Baptist, when they brought the note to Jesus, Jesus looked at it and he said, go back and tell John what you have seen and heard. Right? Reorienting. How else could you expect, explain the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, the poor are hearing and responding to the gospel. Scripture doesn't tell us, but I'm sure when that note got, got to John the Baptist, John the Baptist reads it and he goes, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. I don't care what happens to me. I know you're pulling me through. If you do these things, it doesn't matter what happens to me. My circumstances don't matter. What matters is knowing that you're on the other end pulling me through, filled with hope. Jesus looks at the disciples and said, there's never been a man greater born of woman than John the Baptist. In this moment of hopelessness, Jesus restores hope to him. Man, it's powerful. Jesus says, you have, you have an option of what you're going to be yoked to. You have an option. You can be yoked to the world and handle all of the heavy burdens the way the world does, and you're going to learn after the world, and I'm just going to cut through all of it and say, that is exactly what the church has done. We've yoked ourselves to the way the world handles life, and we have learned from them. And we are modeling them. And our burdens are just like their burdens. Heavy, weighted, and we're hopeless. Now, I know, we're, we're not forfeiting heaven. We've placed our hope in heaven. That's what sometimes we say gives us an excuse. That's kind of like a bless your heart. We can complain about every little thing on earth as long as we have the, but heaven's going to, but you could have hope today. Did you know that? You could have hope today and hope can guard every burden that you carry. If you place it in Jesus. I love that Jesus acknowledges that life is heavy. Verse 28 and 29, Jesus, the word all, because he knows that this, this speaks to all. He recognizes that life builds up on us and, and we wear out and we get tired. And I love that he doesn't condemn them and he doesn't warn them of anything. He, he just gives them an option. He doesn't belittle them. He simply recognizes that life without him is hard. And he says, if you're weary and you're heavy laden, that you should come to him. And it's an invitation, not a rebuke. You don't have to have hope, but you forfeit it. There's a better way, and that better way is available to every person regardless of circumstance. And then he offers us a solution. 
He tells them that there are two yokes, the yoke we attach ourselves to and learn from. It's natural, it's normal, it's hard, it's heavy, and it's crushing. But there's another yoke. It's easy, it's light. And Jesus tells us there has to be an exchange. But it's a full exchange. You can't be yoked to two things. That's where most Christians live. When it comes to this part of my life, I want to be yoked to Jesus. When it comes to this part of my life, I want to be just like the Joneses. I want to be just like the whatever. I want to be just like... And so we just tether ourselves in any circumstance what we want to become like. And you wonder why you're miserable? You wonder why you're frustrated? I'm not going to explain the yoke fully, but you know, it's just, just wooden contraption that hooks two animals to each other. Typically, it's, it's used for a seasoned animal with a very young animal who doesn't know. Not necessarily rebellious, who just doesn't know. So you link these things together, and they're inseparable. And, and what the seasoned one does, the younger one ends up modeling. Jesus says, you've become just like the world. He's talking, to, he's talking to these folks who have placed themselves under the law. And they're trying to please God by being good. And they're trying to please God by being right. And they're trying to please God by doing all of the things. And what Jesus is saying is, it's no wonder your life is miserable. Look at all the things you're trying to do to bring honor and glory to God. It's a heavy burden and doesn't lead to hope. It doesn't lead to rest. There's always more need on the end of it. But if you'll tether yourself to me, learn from me, mimic me, watch how I live and live that way. Watch how I process and process that way. It's your choice, though. It's your choice. I love that. He doesn't say, now that you're a Christian, and starts knocking things off and forces us to wear this yoke of burden. No, you don't have to wear it. You don't have to wear it. But you can. You can. Jesus' yoke is not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be a blessing. But he doesn't do it. It's available to you, but you've got to do it. You've got to, you got to sep separate from the rat race world that you're tethered to now. Filled with things and stuff. Has God on a calendar, but not in their hearts, not in their hands, certainly not in their mouth. You've got to separate from the yoke of the world that's teaching the hope of Jesus right out of you and your kids and your neighbors and your coworkers. Just think... All right, so let me, let me pull, pull this full circle again. All right, so if I were to say, how many of you are yoked to Jesus? I think most of us in the room would say, yes, of course. Uh, so let me ask, is your yoke producing what Jesus' yoke produces? Light, easy, rest, that's, that's how you know what yoke you're attached to. Not what your mouth says, what your life produces. Which yoke are you attached to? How many yokes are you attached to? Your yoke can be crushing or it can be life-giving.
Tell John the Baptist he's yoked to the right thing. You ever just wanted to just take a deep breath? Just to be at, just to be at rest. Just to be free to follow. Now, we've covered a lot of things today. I'm going to wrap it up by saying this. I am convinced that hope is a product of the Spirit's work in you. And the Spirit's work in you is given birth when you're able to lift your hands in gratitude and adore Him from the knees. To surrender your entirety to His entirety. To be joined together with Him as one and not tethered to everything here. Give up. That's what Jesus is saying. Give up. You will not win. Let's stand together. This past week's been a very emotional week for for my family. Now, I don't want to talk about it a lot because I don't, I don't want it, you know, don't feel like it's the right thing to do. <clears throat> but it's been a very trying year. And just about a year and a couple months ago, we found out my wife had a very rare condition in her brain. I'm not going to tell the whole story, of course not. But <clears throat> we didn't have, we didn't have a clue but we had hope because God has brought us through so much. And I had double fusion in my neck. I've had a couple of neck surgeries and the most recent one, um, we made an appointment with the neuro. He's a neurosurgeon. Made an appointment with him. He's the only one I knew. And so last November, we went to Little Rock to the specialist to sit down with him and to have him advise us. Nobody here has ever even heard of this thing before. Our doctor said, our doctor here said, uh, I don't know what to do. What do you want to do? We can Google it. I don't know what to do. This was gee whiz day in medical school. <laughs> so we go down to Little Rock Thanksgiving week and sit down in the office and the office manager came out and he knelt down in front of us. He said, the doctor refuses to see you. We can't refuse to see us. We've had this appointment for a month. <laughs> He said, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. He doesn't, he doesn't know anything about it. I said, I mean, it, we went hopeless pretty quick. And uh, I begged this office manager, if we can just, if we can just talk to him. So he did us a favor. He got up and he walked back and talked to the doctor. And he came back out. He said, guys, I'm really, really sorry. He he doesn't want his name attached to this at all, and, and he, refuses, he refuses to meet you. Here's a $40 gift card for gas. <laughs> and Don Hedda and I uh, cried the whole way on. But we knew, we knew out there God has a plan, because he's always had a plan. But it is scary not knowing what to do. 
And uh, I'm going to fast forward and I'm going I'm I'm um, to confess some things. Uh, over the past year, I was completely unaware of the weight that I was carrying as a husband and as a father. And even in even uh, earlier this m- month, we put our Christmas stuff out before Thanksgiving, and um, because when we come home from South Carolina, Donetta wanted it all decorated, right? She she hate me. She don't tell her that I told you all this. She's teaching upstairs today, <clears throat> but I opened up some of our Christmas decorations, and she, she had she had written she'd written a card, and. Uh, when I was going through the Christmas stuff this year, if she wasn't around this year, she had written me a, a note. Just, just to give a little perspective, not to tug your heart. Uh, 365 days, 365 days from the day that Dr. and Little Rock said, I don't want my name attached to yours. We, we got it all clear from the neurosurgeon in South Carolina. <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's, not, that's not really my point. We, we always knew that that was going to happen one way or the other. All I'm simply saying is I didn't realize all of the, the mental toll when, when he came in and showed us the, the MRIs that she had had that day and, and, you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. It's just like we just both just lost it and just all of this weight that was on us. I didn't even know I was carrying. It's just like it all came to a, you know, and, and, uh, and here I am being your pastor and saying that even though we see Jesus on the other side pulling us through, man, there is some residue that just sticks to you when you're trying to do things on your own. And I didn't even know it. I didn't realize a lot of it. Probably still don't. But I want to make a confession to you that I want to live in the hope of Jesus Christ. I want every moment of my life to be wrapped up in giving him thanks, not because of one thing, but because of everything. If, if you knew the things that he was doing for you every day that you're completely unaware of. Tether your life to Jesus Christ and watch him pull you through. He became, he became flesh so that he could manifest that among us. Let's pray together. Lord, your symmetry is not lost on, on me. And you knew the day that we were tempted to focus on our circumstance. You knew that day what you were going to perform. and Lord I know that there are many people in here that didn't get the answer that we got that doesn't make you less good it means you're just pulling us through something a different way but we know you're on the other end of everything so I pray that today we will learn to be thankful to live in your not just your provision, but that we would give honor and praise to the, to the blesser and not just the blessing. And that we would learn contentment that is found by resting in your spirit. And that the spirit will produce in us the full revelation 
of Jesus' heart and mind. And Lord, as we live there, keenly aware of your presence, we know that you're pulling us through. And I pray that the rat race that we're tethered to, even your people, Lord, that we would repent of that. First, we would recognize it because I think that we live in oblivion to it. We don't realize what we're forfeiting. We'd rather be satisfied with stuff. God, forgive us. Soften our heart. Help us, Lord, to, to be tethered to your yoke and find rest for our souls. It's our deepest craving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe this morning, you're like me and you walking around with a lot of stuff. You don't, you're not even aware of it. Not intentional things. Just walking around, weighted down, carrying loads you were not meant to carry. But it's a byproduct of trusting the wrong things. So let's just take a moment. Take a deep breath. Just pause for a moment. Close your eyes and see Jesus on the other end tethered to you, pulling you through. And whichever direction your head is tempted to turn to look for peace from, satisfaction from, fulfillment from, take that captive let's take a moment and just repent before the Lord for any yoke that we're tethered to and then let us give our our lives to Jesus Christ anew and afresh I want to pray for all of us but this is a prayer you must pray Father, break my heart. Help me to see you. Help me to adore you. Instead of living a balanced life, Lord, help me live a godly life. Help me to get off the hamster wheel that's trying to perform and trying to do something to please you, the, the audacity or the arrogance that is, I don't need your help. I can solve this problem for myself. I don't want to bother you. Lord, I pray that as we walk with you daily, consulting you daily, we will find rest for our souls and purpose in this life and power to know that you still are raising up lame people. You're still bringing sight to the blind. You're still offering the gospel to the poor. Help us, Lord, to reveal that hope to the world around us before it's too late, because I'm convinced time is winding down for us to be able to give hope away. So, Lord, use us as a church. Build in us confidence in you so strong that it can see through in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.